0: I think that's so much of the problem here is Number like two. white people moving to Arizona to retire and being like, "Oh my god, all of these brown people must be new here."
1: Hello. Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We've got Daryl Lind here. And Ezra Klein is back. Hello. He is back. When's the book coming out?
2: Oh, who knows? You know, they say, um, I heard this from David Plotz once, you're only ever 10% or 90% done with the book. I'm definitely 10% done. That is way more than I was before. <laughs>
1: That's, good. That's good. That's good. That's good. We are going to talk today about something a little off the news, although in the in the ether, and that is open borders. Uh, this is a phrase that has come up a lot. The Trump administration likes to frequently portray anyone who criticizes any aspect of their approach to immigration as uh, favoring open borders. This is, I think, a kind of a, a Stephen Millerism that has been pulled off the kind of backbenches of conservative Capitol Hill communication to now like the very frontier of of White House messaging.
2: And I don't think it's true. So I think there are two ways we should look at this. One is to look at the like what you call the open borders myth whether anybody in politics as currently composed supports open borders, why people say they do, sort of what is what is happening in that conversation. But then I think we want to talk about the actual policy of open borders. There, there are people who do support it. None of them, to my knowledge, are elected Democrats. But there are people who do support it. There are interesting both moral and economic arguments around it. Um, and, and it's something that, at the very least, thinking through it in a real way, not just doing the Overton window thing. where like, that's strange and scary sounding. Let's not look at it. It's a good way to clarify what you really think about immigration, even if you don't support open borders, which I think most people don't. Understanding why, as opposed to just sort of rejecting it out of hand, is I think an important exercise to, to go through.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing about the Overton window on, on immigration, and this is something that Matt and I have definitely talked about in the past, is In Congress, the Overton window is so narrow that if you want to expand any kind of immigration of anybody, you have to identify the particular group who you're going to decrease immigration from because they've taken such a zero-sum approach. So because it is so totally allergic to thinking of any kind of what do we want an immigration system to be that isn't, well, okay, we need exactly five more visas in this, so five fewer visas in that, you kind of do have to go back to the kind of very beginning first principles of what do we want an immigration system to accomplish in order to kind of get any distance from just how impoverished that conversation is. It's like, it's not just about, okay, let's divorce ourselves from what's pragmatically possible. It's what's pragmatically possible is not going to tell us anything about where people want policy to go. So so
2: let me try to take, and I don't say this that often, but but I'm back from vacation. I'm ready to be the country. And let me try to take the Stephen Miller side of this argument for a minute. I, I think the thing you hear in Republican Party politics when they are accusing Democrats or really anybody concerned with their immigration policy, with the Trump administration's immigration policy, of being an open borders advocate, is that a lot of the arguments made around immigration, if you just think through their logical conclusions, you do get somewhere near to open borders. A lot of the anger that people who need to come here are not being treated well when they do come here, a lot of the feeling that you know there is something um, profound and important about a family that wants to better their economic station coming through here and, and coming under the fence or overstaying a visa and just trying to build a better life, and these people are worthy of respect and possibly, in, in the long run, even citizenship. When you think about the moral underpinnings of that, I understand why some folks in the, in the Trump administration would say, yeah, they, they don't want to say it, but what they really want is no immigration enforcement at all. Now, what I would say is people's policy ideas are often a little bit incoherent internally, but, but I want to put that out there because I think if you're, if you're taking the generous version of the argument, that's what it looks like.
0: So do you mean just liberals or people in general? Because I feel like in general, one of the most compelling things about accusing people who want anything short of immigration hawkery as open borders is that it actually makes more intuitive sense that borders should be closed than that they should be open. Like the idea that the government can't keep everyone from coming into the country or that it should somehow accept that people who already came in without papers should be legalized is an acceptance of failure that I think a lot of people would respond to by saying, well, why can't we make the system just work better to keep the people out we want to keep out?
1: Well, I think that the the basic rhetorical move here, right, is that— They want to say that to give any regard to the interests of foreigners is equivalent to saying you want to give no special regard to the interests of American citizens, right? Because I mean, I think like philosophically, that's where this all kind of comes from. I I spent some years uh, dallying in the uh, intellectual morasses of, of open borders advocacy myself. And and it comes from, for, for me personally, right? During the mid-aughts, the kind of high point of neoconservatism and also of a certain liberal hawk ideology, I think it was very prominent in American politics to espouse a kind of – at least notionally espouse a kind of neutral benevolence as an ethic, right? Like how can you not care about these Iraqis who we are liberating from Saddam Hussein? How can you not care about these Albanians who we saved in Kosovo, right? And To me, the groundwork into open borders was, well, okay, if you do believe in an ethic of impartial benevolence right opening the borders and allowing foreigners to move to the united states is a much more practical way of helping foreigners than bombing their government, right? So there was this like very hot dispute at that time over should the United States launch an illegal, unprovoked war with the government of Sudan in order to help the population of Darfur? And there was no consideration given to maybe we should invite Darfuris to move to the United States. And and that kind of thinking like really moved me in an open borders-y type direction. And then where I moved like off that was as the debate recalibrated around like all of American foreign policy, I think we all sort of came to see that like almost nobody actually believes that countries should adopt that ethic of totally impartial benevolence toward foreigners and that what we – Practically, have in immigration is Stephen Miller's view that the costs to American citizens of allowing virtually anybody to move here are really, really high. Versus my view that at least at the margin the costs are negative, which isn't the same as saying that the costs of open borders wouldn't be high.
0: Right. I mean, I think that benevolence is really the key there, right? Because the restrictionist view is that because Anyone coming into the US is going to impose some cost on someone, whether it's economic, you know, just risk-related because they're new or cultural, that the only reason that the US would take them in would be because we felt some kind of obligation to other people. And that goes against a common sense understanding of, you know, why, why wouldn't we put Americans first? So I think honestly, where this is kind of going though is that there isn't anyone, and I don't even think there was anyone during the Darfur debate saying in the political sphere, saying open the borders, what they're increasingly has been, have been not just a restrictionism that seeks to cut both legal and unauthorized immigration, now ascendant, but Donald Trump literally going around, you know, just telling Congress during a lunch right before we came into the studio that it's ridiculous that Congress has this hodgepodge of immigration laws. And instead, there should be a simple thing called, I'm sorry, you can't come here that like, the idea of closing the borders has a lot more purchase in the political sphere than opening the borders does, even if it's not actually something that Congress would write a law to do. And I wonder if that I think is kind of making I think if open borders is seeming like a trope that's being Used more often because the people who are using it are actually saying radical restriction, if not totally shutting down immigration.
2: So I'm gonna I'm gonna continue taking the other side of this because I actually don't think that's right. I think something we've seen since Donald Trump has been elected, and, and also going before it in, in other ways, but for instance, attitudes towards immigrants have gone way up since Donald Trump has been elected, right? So one thing that he is he's been anti-persuasive on questions of immigration. Um, the, the public has turned sharply against him from where they were before. When you listen to a lot of rhetoric of immigration advocates or just people who are who are unsettled about how Trump is treating immigrants. I think that that rhetoric has swung quite a bit from where it was 10 years ago from where it was very much from where it was 20 years ago. Matt, you'll sometimes do the thing of tweeting out the 2008 Democratic yeah. platform on immigration. Yeah. It reads very differently. The I mean, Dara, you've written a great piece on the 1996 immigration yep. bill, right? The bill Clinton signed into law. Like Barack Obama could never get away with that today or could not have gone away with that and no Democrat running for president could, could dare. You, you listen to the debate about Donald Trump's idea to cut legal immigration by 50 percent and how angry it makes people on the left. Mm-hmm. And then you wonder, well, if cutting it by 50 percent is so bad – why not raise it by 200%? And, and by the way, I think we should raise the number of immigrants we have. And I mean there are people including me who believe that our number is much too low. You listen to the way people are reacting to folks who are, are, are claiming asylum or even folks who are coming and claiming sort of real economic distress, um, the, the the sympathy given to them in the media. And one of the things beneath all this is that I believe correctly – that folks coming to this country legally and illegally are being treated as if they have moral worth in the public conversation. and Once you make that jump, which I think is a jump we often haven't made in America, the question of, well, why have we set the dial right here? Maybe you actually want to turn the dial way up um, becomes open, particularly when you're then – buttressing that as I think the economics literature now is with a much more uh, positive view of immigrants' effect on the economy. I mean this was easier back when more people believed the sort of Borjas view that it was you know, bad for everybody's wages or at least bad for, for low-skill native wages for immigrants to come in. But now that we have I think a lot more sophisticated work from Perry and others showing its substitutes uh, uh, – complements rather than substitutes, all of a sudden it's like if immigrants are, are bettering the economy, if they have moral worth, if they're legitimately fleeing terrible situations, well, then why wouldn't you let many more of them in? I mean, yeah, look for security risks, but but why not? Well, but I mean, this is really the question of open borders,
1: right? And and this is where like, I really just think it's important to push back on this and understand like how far we are from open borders, right? That like the economic studies of immigration, they are in sample studies, right? They are examining things that occur under current immigration policy. I think it's pretty clear that if a 63-year-old moved here from a foreign country, worked at a low-skilled job for five years, became a citizen and then claimed social security benefits, that would not have like a positive impact on the American labor market. Not because anything bad about that person or you don't need to call them an infestation or whatever Donald Trump is doing. They're just – they're old, right? Whereas a young person who comes here, works for decades and then gets their benefits, that has a big boost to the labor market. and. As it happens under current law, you don't have random 62-year-olds moving here with no family connections. and But like that's because we have laws, right? And like there are things that could – occur in a scenario of complete openness that would have significant costs. And, and typically, you'll see open borders people like, like Brian Kaplan, uh, who um, I think Vox interviewed on, on the subject of open borders. He says like, well, what you should do is build a wall around the welfare state rather than building a wall around the country, which, you know, like that's a great slogan. Uh, but already, it means that the open borders people are moving away from total openness and part of this is that brian doesn't really think there should be a welfare state at all so you know it's 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 all fine for him but i think one debate which is important is like would allowing a more generous immigration policy be beneficial to the united states and i think yes a different question is 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 there a strong moral obligation to adopt an immigration policy that is so open that it would be detrimental to the United States? And there I think philosophically, no, even though foreigners have have some moral weight. It is people's presumption that the American government should be accountable to American citizens and should count their interests primarily, I think is correct. It's just that that is compatible with a much more open immigration policy.
0: I mean, I feel like the question here is also, are there a lot of people who actually believe that the answers to both of those questions are yes and haven't acknowledged it yet? Ezra, it kind of sounded like what you're calling for is a turn from this kind of soft open border support, this tacit open border support that's reflecting itself as an opposition to enforcement to actually be a little more proactive and thought through and think about like, well, why would we accept the status quo? The reason that I'm not totally sure that the people who you're describing who tend to be the activists on the left Matt and I you know did an episode earlier this year about abolish ICE those kind of folks the people who are opposing enforcement in concrete terms, but who aren't saying open borders per se, and the people whom Matt's talking about, the economists who have been saying open borders for years and years and years, the difference between those two is that the first group are largely couching what they're talking about in terms of a return to a historical American status quo. One of the arguments against ICE is that it's a new agency, which is like oversimplified, but a cute catchy slogan. The arguments against cutting legal immigration are that it's cutting it, that, you know, we're doing okay right now. Why would we want to radically change it? A lot of people have just across the board like radically misunderstand how generous the american immigration system really is and think it's a lot more generous than it is and not all of them have huge problems with that so like one of the reasons that i personally don't tend to engage with open borders directly as a position is that it seems that a lot of people who are who think they're defending the status quo are actually you know, in favor of a more liberal regime, that doesn't necessarily mean that they see it as just kind of inevitably sliding toward complete openness. So, I
2: so a couple of things, and and all those I think are very good points. Um, I'm not calling for anything. Uh, <laughs> I, I will reveal my views on open borders as this podcast goes on. No, what I, I am just, I saying yeah. is that I think that the moral underpinnings and economic underpinnings of the arguments used and particularly used in the modern era and particularly activated by Donald Trump's treatment of immigrants have begun throwing the arbitrariness of where our immigration system is into further relief. And So if you are on the right and you are listening to some of these arguments – why the people making them don't support radically more open borders all the way possibly up to open borders. I think it's a reasonable question to ask. I don't think it's being asked in good faith, but but I do think that you could listen to this. And, and this is, by the way, when you read real open borders advocates like Brian Kaplan, what you read are, are arguments that look very much like this. If it is morally abhorrent to not allow X thing that we would not allow, right. then how are you letting this person who wants to come here and will otherwise be, penny, be penniless and their children might be, be sick from very... Very preventable diseases in Haiti. How are you not letting them come here? How's that any how is that any better? How are you the good person you think you are? But I do want to note to bring this more into the, the realm of the tangible, because I'm interested in this question of how people justify their immigration policies, I often ask politicians about open borders, um, which gets me very unusual answers.
0: <laughs> and so it's a one Coke thing you, It is a Cook Brothers
2: myth. Exactly. And so one thing you might think about is it if Democrats really support open borders, like the liberal ones support it. So I had an interview with Bernie Sanders a couple of years ago. I think a couple years ago. It's so hard to tell time now. Uh, but but yeah, I think this is when- it's was it, like four is. years ago. It was when
0: he was running for president. Yeah, so this so. must have been
2: 2015, probably <laughs> this interview. So I asked him about this. I said, you said being a democratic socialist means a more international view. And I think if you take global poverty that seriously, it leads you to conclusions that in the US are considered out of political bounds. Things like sharply raising the level of immigration we permit even up to the level of open borders. And he interrupts me here and he says, open borders, no, that's a Koch brothers proposal. And, and so one of the things- that, and I found this with a lot of democratic politicians is that when you push them in immigration, particularly in the um, older guard of democratic politicians, not just very liberal ones, but I've talked to Taylor Clinton's people about this, I mean, and, and, and a lot of others who are, who are serving and have not retired, you find actually a lot of discomfort with much higher immigration. I mean, a lot of these folks came of age... Um, at a time when immigration was looked at very differently. They're deep into the labor movement, um, which has often had a very complex idea about competition from immigrants. And So, it really isn't the case, actually, that I think Democrats are comfortable with much higher levels of immigration. Trump has moved them into a position where some of the arguments they're making often sound like that. But it was just not the issue that under Barack Obama, for all the anger Democrats have about Trump's proposal to cut legal immigration by 50 percent, it just literally was not the case that under Barack Obama, there was a counter move to increase it by 50 or 200 percent. Right? Interestingly for all the discussion of protecting the status quo on immigration, those same moral feelings do not lead to a desire to push the status quo up on immigration or at least not with the, the same energy. But that I think, is a good transition into why and like would open borders or something closer to open borders actually be a good idea well let's let's take a break Like
1: so many of you guys, I'm always learning just for pleasure, just for fun. I I love to learn. And that's why I love The Great Courses Plus. There's always something new to discover out there. So what is it? The Great Courses Plus is unlimited access to thousands of fascinating lectures presented by top professors and experts. You can choose any topic that interests you, history, politics, but also, you know, if you want to sort of break with, with the weeds themes, they got science, literature, even hobbies like cooking, guitar, chess. And with The Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen completely on your own schedule. So one thing that... That you really might enjoy is their new course Thinking Like an Economist A Guide to Rational Decision Making and this is about you know not sort of like the nuts and bolts of the economy but kind of sort of like the economist's toolkit and how they understand like rational agent decision making and you can improve your own decision making by sort of using these principles and these analytic tools so I think you're going to love the great courses plus as much as I do if you haven't signed up yet I mean what are you waiting for there's a free trial for our listeners with unlimited access to enjoy any of their lectures for free but you got to use their special Show your support for the show and start your free trial now. Sign up at com slash weeds. Remember, com slash weeds. If you like Vox and you like Vox's podcasts, you are going to love Vox's new show on Netflix. It's called Explained. Every episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week, the topic is the stock market. I think you're going to love it. I, I worked a little bit on this episode, actually. I'm, I'm kind of proud of it, although I, I claim no real credit fundamentally. It, it explains like, like how the stock market works, what it actually means, how it impacts the economy. If we've sort of gone too far in relying on the stock market as the sole barometer of how our economy and its investment should be structured, uh, it's super informative. It, it's, like, it's really short. It's got cool cartoons. It's got a really cute little girl running a lemonade stand. So absolutely check it out. Explained on Netflix. If you like knowing things about the world, being smart, being well-informed, you know there's really no better way to get that kind of information than magazines. It's an amazing way to, to stay on top of fun stuff, interesting stuff, important stuff, all kinds of things. Except, in this day and age, do you need like a big stack of nonsense on your coffee table? I do not, and Texture is a fantastic solution. Uh, so what is it? Texture is the magazine app. It offers more than 200 of the best magazines all in one place. You get complete issues, you get back issues anytime, anywhere all in one app, right? So instead of like five magazines on a coffee table, you get on your phone, on your tablet, like all the magazines, all the issues of everything. You can stay connected to the biggest and best stories today with Texture. It's really kind of amazing. I like to take a break from like politics, weeds, Vox stuff. I like Food & Wine, Food Network Magazine, all kinds of other stuff. Dwell about architecture is another thing I love. ESPN Magazine about sports. So to start your seven-day free trial, here's what you need to know. You go to Texture. .com/weeds. So why wait? Try Texture for free today at texture.com/weeds. That's texture.com/weeds. Start your free trial for free right now.
2: So to, to prepare for this podcast, my first weeds back, I wanted to be, I wanted to be ready. Uh, I went and read some of the, the literature around open borders. And if you want to get a sense of what the argument that actual open borders people make on this is, there are two pieces I'd, I'd recommend and, and we'll put them in show notes. One is by an economist at the Center for Global Development named Michael Clemens. And he wrote a, a really, really interesting piece and it, I think it's called Trillion Dollar Bills on the Sidewalk. And the idea is that here is this one policy the open borders, and he's talking globally, not just in America, that if we enacted it, the global GDP would go up by trillions of dollars. He he argues basically nothing we could do as a globe that would increase global economic value as much. It would do that by allowing people to better match, um, people who are highly skilled coming into more productive economies. It would then allow them to send remittances back home to their home countries, which allow for more global development. It would just be a huge difference. And he does something interesting in here, which is that he looks at the arguments for free trade, which by the way, are very similar to questions about open borders. Like, why would you want to have tariffs? Why would you want things to move easily over borders? You know, you have then better specialization in what people make. You're able to match better buyer and seller. And there's all this talk about it and, you know, Republicans love free trade and and it's this big thing. And then he writes, the gains from eliminating migration barriers, so immigration barriers dwarf by an order of a magnitude or two, the gains from eliminating other types of barriers. For the elimination of trade policy barriers and capital barriers, the estimated gains amount to less than a few percent of world GDP. For labor mobility barriers, the estimated gains are often in the range of 50 to 150% of world GDP." So, I mean, you're talking about possibly doubling world GDP if you did this. Um, He notes that right now the the numbers of migration um, for all we talk about is reasonably small, about 200 million people, 3% of the world roughly live outside their countries of birth. And so he says, you know, to those who think this is impossible, to those who think it is ridiculous. He writes, the world has summarily discarded vast systems of restrictions on the labor mobility of medieval serfs slaves, women, South African blacks, indigenous Australians, and a long list of others. And his point here is that we've actually had much bigger revolutions in who is allowed to work and in what numbers than even this would look like. And so he thinks at least economists should become more bold as a profession about studying what the likely magnitude of this would be and and being serious about it. Then we mentioned Brian Kaplan. And Kaplan is also an economist. Um, Clemens is really a labor development and global development economist. Kaplan is sort of a heterodox free thinker, libertarian. Kind of guy, but he he comes out and makes, I think, a much more morally based argument. Um, and, and we'll we'll put that in there too. But but when you read it, it is a very, very strong argument for why leaving people to poverty, leaving them to places where they and their children will die sooner from low healthcare, preventable diseases, will they have tougher lives where they're not as able to use their talents and be paid well for them, that considering other things we think are immoral, that is an incredibly immoral thing to do to them. And so I think it it, it well shows the two sides of this, which is really an economics case, which Clemens primarily makes, and a, a sort of moral philosophy case, which you see a lot in here, which Kaplan makes. I could stop here, but I will say the thing I think all these discussions really tend to omit is likely political outcomes of something like this, which I think change the numbers and the thinking here dramatically. But but I'll, I'll stop on that. Where do you guys see this?
0: I think that there are smart and dumb ways to gloss these arguments, right? It's very easy to say all policy is about trade-offs and it is extremely unlikely that one imperative, be it an economic or moral one, will be so strong as to overwhelm all of the possible countervailing imperatives on the other side. And it's worth, you know, spelling those out. Like, I'm probably like most people in not thinking that GDP is the only standard by which someone should make policy, that there are concerns about respecting individual rights that you would want to consider. You would want to make sure that you're maintaining a certain amount of integrity for non-governmental structures, for civil society, for social cohesion— those get into, I think, another level of questions about like when and how does immigration threaten those and if they threaten those, is that the fault of the immigrants or the natives? But just bracketing that, it's not inconceivable that those things would be more compelling than the totalizing economic logic or the totalizing moral logic. So I think the right way to understand the argument that the open borders advocates are making aren't that there are no tradeoffs. It's that the trade-offs that are being made are particular to Natives and that it is unfair in an honest accounting of the amount of power that the United States has on the world stage for people only to be concerned with the particular concerns of individual U.S. Natives as opposed to having the responsibility to think about what's going to be best for the world. So I I think
1: Clemens' work on this is very important and I take it as like a a, a guide star in, in a lot of my thinking about immigration, Right. At the same time, I, I, I don't think that like getting economic rationale is decisive, right? So, something I think about that I, I, I learned it in college and in political philosophy classes about uh, Quebec, right? And Quebec adopted at a certain point in its history a lot of very stringent laws about the predominant use of the French language in business, and one cost of this was that it, it really destroyed Montreal as a location of corporate headquarters. Like Montreal is a really cool city if you've ever been there. It used to be that a lot of like big multinational, you know, Canada, U.S., like North American business corporations would be headquartered in Montreal just as there were many in Toronto or Chicago or, or any other city. Once they had a rule that everybody has to use French all the time, that really that really lost out, right? And Like today, the Bank of Montreal is headquartered in Toronto. But the Quebecers, they had their reasons for doing that. I I couldn't say as an English-speaking American that like I support French language promotion in Quebec. But it's not like alien to me why it is the people of Quebec decided that they wanted to ensure the preservation of Francophone Quebecois culture in an English-dominated North American continent. At the same time. What I think would be really dangerous would be for Quebecers to confuse themselves and to say that these French language policies are economically beneficial, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what we have a lot in the United States. Like I saw Andrew Sullivan on on one of his like weirdo Twitter rants saying that to worry about a rampant pace of demographic change isn't racist, it's conservative. Isn't fascistic. Yeah, and like I don't know what it is, what it isn't. It's fine. Look, if people want to be more concerned about rapid demographic change, quote unquote, than I am, like I I can't stop them, right? But what I can do as a journalist is try to make sure that people aren't seeing win-wins where they don't exist, right? Mm -hmm. And Clemens's point is that in general, preventing people from coming to the United States to work is costly in economic terms. That doesn't mean we should never do it, right? Like it's totally reasonable to undertake costly measures to preserve your culture. And if you think particularly about countries that aren't the United States, right? Like you imagine like Finland, right? It's like this 4 million Finnish speakers, 1 million Swedish speakers. If 27 million people moved from Nigeria to Finland, like the Finnish nation would – in some sense, stop existing, and you can see why Finnish people would like want to not do that. Uh, but you should have a reasonable assessment of what you're doing, and I think that like the premise of a lot of Trumpian immigration restriction and a lot of um, still a lot of the the media discourse is that you know when Mexican agricultural workers come here and they pick vegetables, that that is somehow a Tangible material harm to Americans. And like that's just not true, right? Like we still probably do not want people to move here in unlimited, unrestricted quantities, but the restrictions we put are costly, just like a, a lot of other kind of regulatory measures. You know, Kaplan is really where I, I do think you should. Bust out, uh, Bernie Sanders, and and that's a Koch brothers proposal, right? Like, what Brian is arguing is that we have no obligations to our fellow citizens, and that's why Brian does no not...
2: unique obligations necessarily.
0: Well, the, the, well, he
1: obligations to everybody. there's sure. no
0: obligation bestowed upon mutual citizenship.
1: Right, right. So you know, he thinks it's it's terrible to stop somebody from Peru from moving here, uh, but also like great to just let people. Not have health insurance in the United States, and like I, I think that's wrong. Like we are living in a society here, as George Costanza says, uh, we have obligations to each other that are different from our general obligations to human beings. But like a great advantage of America historically is that American national identity can incorporate lots of people moving here, and having immigration is a source of, of growth and strength. That's one reason America is such a rich
2: and powerful country. A couple of quick thoughts here. One is that uh, I just want to be careful on Kaplan. I actually don't know if he says we have no unique obligations to citizens. I do think a big part of his argument is that if you believe we have almost any obligations to non-citizens, if, if, if the moral weight of a non-citizen is half or 25 percent, that of a citizen, then even so, the amount of suffering um, that that is prevented by letting them move here might might make it worth it. He writes, immigration restrictions are not a minor inconvenience we impose on the rest of the world for our peace of mind. Immigration restrictions literally ruin many millions of lives. So uh, I just want to note that because I want to be careful on on making sure his position is rendered correctly. But I do think – I'm glad you brought up demographic change, Matt, because it actually – it's very central to my thinking on this, which is – you know, the, the work I'm doing for my book is very much about how various identities that we hold are activated, what kinds of conditions lead them to be activated, what happens when they're activated. And over and over and over and over again in the literature, one thing you see is that we have a, a mental software where when we begin seeing a lot of people who we do not code as like us beginning to emerge in our immediate both physical and perceptual space, right? It doesn't even need to be literally living in my city, it could be that they're on my television a lot, we get a sense of threat. The operating system that human beings are working with is very tribal. And it's not always the same level of tribal, but but it does get activated by different things. And this is a thing that I do not know quite how to wait. If we doubled immigration to the U.S., Could that be absorbed without unbelievably high levels of of tribalism coming out that that could be really ruinous to, for instance, the future of immigration in the US? Um, I'm not sure. There's an argument that Donald Trump – Donald Trump was – you saw a much bigger turn to Donald Trump in communities, and I'm saying this among Democrats, in communities where Latino immigration had been increasing the fastest. This is not communities, by the way, and this is important, that had the most Latino immigrants. It was communities where there was the largest new number, um, relatively, of Latino immigrants. So I mean one thing you can say is that we did not have a huge surge in immigration during this period, um, but it was enough to create a political force like Donald Trump double, triple, quadruple, quintuple that surge of immigration and what kinds of of, of political um, outcomes do you get. That doesn't really show up in an economic model. It doesn't really show up in a philosophical model and I don't want it to show up at all. I would like to sort of have a conception of human nature where that wouldn't happen, but my read of where we are is that it would happen. Um, that is what we know about people, and that it can go much worse than even what we've seen in in, in the present um, period. Uh, I was I had for the Ezra Klein show this week. I have an interview with Eric Garcetti, the mayor of L.A., talking about actually governing a diverse community. But we we're talking about immigration and, and some of these issues. And one thing he notes, he, we were sitting in his office in in City Hall, and he said, you know, a few blocks from here is where the single largest lynching in American history happened. And it was against Chinese immigrants in Los Angeles. And so the thing that I think often gets underplayed is how little it takes to activate some very, very, very dangerous threat processes in in the human psyche. And I believe a lot of the arguments for open borders, but this is the one that I really believe against it, that I am not convinced that societies can be and will be stable. Political societies will be stable under these kinds of rapid influx conditions. And when they become unstable, the consequences can be as disastrous or more disastrous than the harms you're trying to prevent.
0: So I'm deeply ambivalent about that, because on the one hand, I generally think that there's no limiting principle to that variety of argument that it it comes very quickly back to well doing something that we acknowledge is morally right is going to provoke a political backlash and therefore we ought not do the thing that is morally right it gives the people who are most likely to be threatened by something veto power over it rather than trying to think through what and i know you're not you're not just saying like they won't like it you're saying that there is a material harm that is going to be visited upon the very people you're trying to help but i'm usually wary of we should not do this because it will provoke a backlash rather than thinking through carefully who would be culpable for that backlash morally and what are the alternate dynamics that will will and won't provoke that backlash, right? A lot of the anti-Obama backlash on immigration had nothing to do – you know, for all of the kind of county-level stuff you're describing, a lot of people thought that millions of immigrants were coming in under Obama when net Mexican unauthorized migration was less than zero. So, like, I'm not – Sure, that we can predict that readily when those kind of things will and won't be triggered, to not to make that kind of the basis on which policy gets made. On the other hand, I think you're right that what we really need is a smarter conversation about immigration, in which people are actually having to defend the America that they're trying to create by having a particular immigration policy. The American government should not be in the position of using immigration as a tool to dictate what the nation is going to be. Or like, that's not something that people can control anyway and they shouldn't try. I'm not sure that that's a level of fatalism that we're willing to accept or should be willing to accept as a polity. And I think that when you have people who are trying to get in the political mix by saying, America shouldn't have any say over what it is like, that does kind of activate the restrictionist arguments over if you don't have borders, you don't have a country, and how dare you say we shouldn't have any control. So I'd much rather have a world where people who are concerned about rapid demographic change are talking about why they feel this particular wave of rapid demographic change is somehow beyond the previous elasticity we've seen with who can be counted as American. Obviously, that's not a historically informed conversation in its current form. You would want it to be a conversation about, yes, I acknowledge that Italians used to not be white and they are now, but this would be different. I want to hear people who are on the left, who are not open borders, folks talking about what the America they want to see is that is going to give you a pass if you've been in the U.S. for a while and have put down roots here, what that says about the Kinds of people who we want in America. That's my pie in the sky. It's not any more politically practicable than open borders. But I think if we're talking about social cohesion through politics, that's the way we get there.
1: I wish that we could take more seriously what troubles people about immigration and then take advantage of the opportunities that immigration produces to allow in more immigrants who do not meet those problems, right? Like, I think a lot of people very sincerely disturbed by the idea of displacing the English language from its central role in American society, right? But it is very difficult to hire a Canadian person to come do white collar work in the United States. It is very difficult to migrate here from the Anglophone Caribbean. Um, And like, I don't think There's a big problem with that and like we could make it radically easier for native English speakers to move to the United States and we might want to put some conditionality on it. We might want to have a point system but just a point system in which being a native English speaker gives you like a lot of points. And even like Tom Cotton's thing where he incorporates English language skills, he makes it like TOEFL scores, right? So like as a second language and – Of course, from a narrow labor market perspective, like that's fine. Speaking English well as a second language is good for getting a job. But if you're concerned about like what is America like? What do the signs at the store say? It's people's native language that matters. Like I grew up in New York, so I'm not super hung up on linguistic diversity. But I just don't think it's crazy for people to say that going from a town where everything is in English to a town where half the things are in Spanish is like a big change. But there are like lots of people speak English and we don't make it any easier for them to come here than anybody else. There's a lot of concern about, well, are people going to come mooching off the welfare state? And I think empirically, that's like a little overblown. But there's also lots of welfare states that are way more generous than ours, right? We don't make it any easier for somebody from France or Denmark to come here than, than any place else, even though like nobody's going to come here from France to get their sweet Medicaid. And, and like we could try to work on these things Uh, but I feel that there's like an insistence on like diving straight into the heart of darkness that like immigration restrictionists have unpalatable motives so we must only put forward immigration ideas that like directly cut against what they want when I don't know like it's politics like you – I don't think you. I have like a totally principled vision of this, but like the gains to allowing more immigration are really large. So it would be worth trying to see like which doors are open and, and actually open them.
0: So my question, and I guess as much as anything, this is a question for Ezra, uh, who's, you know, like probably run into something on this on book leave as much as it's a question for you. But given that you acknowledge that the empirical concerns about the welfare state are overblown, and for that matter, that... Language attrition of Spanish among Latino immigrants is exactly on pace with the previous generations of immigrant I'm waves.
1: I'm quite familiar with.
0: Them. Right, right, right. Like, given that both of these are based on bankrupt empirical concerns, why are you confident that those motivations are legit? Right. This is the problem that I run into all the time. That I think I, I mentioned on a recent episode of the Weeds when we're talking about kind of arguments over immigration is people often make arguments that appear to be empirical arguments, but there aren't where they're true motivations lie so that when you rebut those empirical arguments, they are not going to change their positions based on it. So why would adopting a policy that accepts those as valid concerns but tries to work around them not run into the same problem where it turns out their problems are something else? Well, I
1: mean, language attrition, right, is still a multi-generational process right like i i think people who are like oh these mexican immigrants they're so different from italian immigrants like that's wrong but like it's absolutely true that in immigrant heavy communities there's a lot of spanish language being spoken right like and you know, like if that bothers people like let's let's like open borders with the bahamas but, open borders with jamaica like why not but see
2: that this is exactly where i think this falls apart so i think that the thing to you hate the bahamas <laughs> <laughs> i think the thing to re- think about here is that what activates people's sense of concern is seeing difference around them. So one difference around them they could see is a bunch of people speaking a different language. Another difference they could see around them, particularly if they're a, a member of the racial majority in this country, which is to say they're white, is a lot of people who, look like, who don't look like them. So and I recognize this is not an Anglophone country, but I go back a couple of months to when there was a desire to have a lot of Haitians come in. And Donald Trump said, well, we don't want people from these shithole countries coming in. I don't think if you would just change that to a country that is also poor like Haiti but has more English speakers, that Donald Trump would have been okay. He wanted people from – what was it? Norway? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so I think the argument you're making here, Matt, which I I think you you could go with, but I think where it would end is just a lot of immigration from – the Scandinavian countries, from Canada. I mean you would make – you would be making ultimately to, to deactivate a sense of difference. You would be ultimately really widening the amount of immigration from upper income – mostly white countries now maybe that's an okay thing to do but but I want to note that it would it would mean locking a lot of people out and I think you see it here right I think you you note know, when you hear Steve King talk and others talk there's a lot of talk about like sort of European ancestry I mean there are versions of more open immigration plays that to the Pat Buchanans and sort of alt writers of the world would make sense because it would begin to give white Americans, again, a a demographic advantage when they see that there is a demographic disadvantage coming in sort of population and immigration statistics. I would be morally uncomfortable with that, but uh, – I think you'd have to go that far. I don't think you could do one of them. I think you'd have to knock out a lot of things to create feelings of, dist- uh, of difference. I, I want to note something else because I think it comes up in here a lot, this idea of net migration, right? What did people feel and not feel during the Obama era? I think that a lot of sort of pro-immigrant folks get really hung up on this net migration issue. If you look at percentage of foreign-born residents in America— That has been going up since the 70s when it was roughly 4 percent to now it's at about 14 percent and soon it will be at a record of roughly 17 percent in the next couple of decades. It's been high before. It's been this high before. But when it was this high before, this actually was a European immigration period. It was the 1920s and we had another incredibly racist um, immigration bill that came out during that period. Right.
0: It was the wave that happened before those people ended up assimilating into being considered white immigrants. So
2: I do think the part of what's going on here, it's wrong I think to think about it Yearly flows, it's a, it's a kind of cumulative, like how many people around you are are kind of activating a, a sense of foreignness, right? I think, you know, and so even if you slow things down, as long as that number is still going up, and for population reasons and so on, it probably will. I think the thing people experience is like the total level of of, of foreignness around them, not sort of yearly unauthorized immigration. But but to, to the point that was being made earlier about like, well, what would an actual policy here be? And I sort of wish Democrats would would go more on this, like. I think that a nice like sort of conservative thing to see what we can do would be just doubling it, right? Like I that's what I would like to see. Not open borders, I think that might be too much, but I don't think enough people given the actual evidence we have here and the economic evidence are willing enough to just say let's have more and see how that works out.
1: All right. Well, there's no no open borders in studio time, uh, so we're going to have to bring this to an end. Fascinating discussion. I'm confident that we will have more opportunities to discuss immigration, as it is a, a very hot <laughs> issue. Uh, pop into the Facebook group for The Weeds and, and discuss this further. Uh, thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Really glad to have Ezra back on the show, and The Weeds will be back on Friday.